Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here's your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roche. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of The Chef Educator podcast. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Today's episode is titled, The First Year Teacher. Now, before we start on today's topic, I want to give a little background information on the podcast for our new listeners. The Chef Educator Podcast was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and seasoned culinary, baking and pastry, and hospitality teachers, instructors, and faculty at both secondary and post-secondary institutions. Our hope is to offer a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that we can all use in our classrooms and or labs. And if this is of interest, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Okay, with that said, let's jump right into today's topic for the first year teacher. As a new teacher, your life is already stressful. You're entering a new job, setting up a new classroom, dealing with new procedures, completing a ton of paperwork, and having to meet and relate to so many new people over the course of a day. Unfortunately, this stress will not end anytime soon. For the first several months in your new position, you'll find yourself running from task to task, trying to keep up with everything that is required of you. There will be more forms to complete, papers to grade, lessons to plan, and then, of course, you're teaching every day as well. And if you're teaching at the college and university level, you also need to learn how to balance the time you spend on teaching with research and service to your department in the university. Well, have no fear. This episode is dedicated to you, the first-year teacher, and is designed to hopefully give you confidence while getting you prepared for your teaching duties. Our goal is to give you some helpful tips and techniques that can help strengthen your effectiveness as you make the transition into your new teaching position. To me, one of the best ways to lower the amount of stress we deal with on a daily basis as teachers is to be prepared. I believe that preparation is the key to being a successful teacher. The more thought and effort we put into our lessons and our job, the better we will be. You also will be less stressed throughout the year if you are prepared. But I also want to say right off the bat that becoming an excellent secondary or post-secondary teacher is a continuous lifelong professional pursuit. You should also recognize that teaching is both an art and a science. Therefore, these best practice tips and techniques I'm about to share with you are just a starting point on the journey that we as teachers strive for every day in order to become the best we can be. So as already mentioned, the first year of teaching is very stressful. However, by putting in place some very simple habits, you can reduce some of that stress. Being prepared is not only helpful for you, but for your students and any guest speakers or substitute teachers that might be coming into your classroom. It also shows your administrators, such as your chair, dean, or your principal, that you are not only professional, but that you are efficient in executing your job. So here are the five main areas that I believe are important for first-year teachers to concentrate on. For number one, the first area is course planning. 
way before the semester or term even starts, you need to engage in course planning. And I would begin the process by defining your course goals. In other words, rather than by defining the content your course will cover, start by defining your goals for student learning. Establishing what you want your students to learn, including both knowledge and skills, will help you determine the appropriate content, the teaching methods, the assignments, and even the exams. Now, to get specific information on course planning, you can listen to episode three of this podcast, which was titled Designing a Course. Okay, so keep in mind that the methods and approaches you use will be shaped not only by your course goals, but also by the size of the class and the type of students who will be taking the course. As with anything you are communicating, you can be most effective when you shape what you are teaching for your specific audience. Therefore, try and learn about your students in advance. For example, are they majors or non-majors? Are they freshmen, seniors, or are they a mix of different types of students? In general, be cognizant of the student's level of familiarity with the course material, as well as their relative intellectual capabilities. For example, freshmen usually will not be prepared to discuss ideas at the same level of complexity as upperclassmen. Therefore, you may need to adjust the language and, and your approach when teaching first-year students. The more you know about your students' academic backgrounds and abilities, the better able you will be able to help them learn what you would like them to learn. Therefore, it's always good to consider your expected enrollment during those planning stages. Another tip is to begin the process of planning your course as early as you can, three to six months if possible. Give yourself plenty of time to plan the course, as well as to order all the necessary materials. If you plan to set up a course website, you may even need to seek out some technical assistance ahead of time for that. And be sure to set high but realistic expectations for student learning and achievement. Your students will rise to the occasion and meet your expectations, but only if you plan and approach the course in a way that will provide them with the tools they need to succeed. And during this planning phase, you're also going to need to develop assignments and exams that will help your students advance their thinking. I like to begin with assignments that require them to kind of recall information and define terms. And then I work up the Bloom's Taxonomy Pyramid to lengthier assignments and exams that ask them to apply and analyze, synthesize, and evaluate. And establishing all your course policies, such as you know academic integrity, grading, attendance, if you do all this before the class begins, this will go a long way toward preventing problems. And keep in mind that it's always easiest to set clear, even rigid policies at the beginning, and then be flexible later on when the occasion warrants. It's easier to do that than to try to enforce more rigid policies later in the semester if you started on more of the easier end. And of course, all policies should be included in the course syllabus. So be sure to check out episode two of this podcast, which was titled Preparing a Syllabus, to get more information on what is suggested to be you know, in the syllabus or in that document. Now, if possible, it's always best to personally visit and check out the classroom or lab that you'll be teaching in beforehand so that you can familiarize yourself with the layout and any available equipment or multimedia that might be in there. And visiting the classroom or lab will give you a, a sense of how you and your students will use this space 
you know, make sure you have all of the equipment you might need. I like to write on the board and try out the projector and test all the equipment. I also stand at different parts of the room to learn about the student's perspective. You know, how does it look from where they'll be sitting? And know where the nearest bathrooms are and take note of emergency exits and other safety issues, especially if you're going to be in, in a lab. And as soon as you plan your lessons, go ahead and gather all of the materials you will need. If you have handouts, go ahead and make the copies. You know, get the books or magazine resources you're going to need from the library. Set up any PowerPoint presentations or video clips that you plan to use. And if you need to sign up for a computer lab or need help from another colleague, contact them immediately. Don't wait until the last minute. And I like to put the request in writing and follow up with an email. And regarding your bookstore, most of them ask for your book orders in, to be put in in April for the following fall and in October for the following spring semester. So you got to get those in on time. And your school's library, remember, they can usually place materials on reserve. That's hard copies as well as electronically for your students. So if you're going to do that, make sure you reach out to them. You can also post electronic documents on your Blackboard, you know, your learning management system. So that may be part of this planning process. And if you're going to do any photocopied packets of readings, you know, course readers or something, you know, you got to be advised that it often takes time to obtain those, you know, copyright clearances from the publishers as well as to put them through your copy center and get them all ready. So it's all timing in there. And don't forget to take time to prepare for the first day as well. Preparation is the best cure for nervousness or uncertainty. And the first day is usually the most nervous. Therefore, you should have put in a lot of thought into that first class. It's the most significant in setting a tone for the semester. For me, I always prepare to teach on day one rather than just introduce the course and its requirements. Then it gives the students a sense of what to expect in the course. If you want more information or tips on the first day, check out episode four of this podcast, which was all about that topic. I suggest you also practice your first class session, preferably in the classroom where you will teach if that's possible. You know, rehearse how you're going to use the whiteboard, how you're going to use the technology, for example, and, and plan, you know, and how you're going to manage the class time. And when are you going to pause to ask questions? You know, all those things you, you want to do on that, on that class time or that first day or in that session, what are you going to do? Practice it and expect that your students are going to bring into the course different learning preferences. Therefore, plan to use a variety of teaching methods including those that involve active learning. Students can learn more and be more engaged if you routinely integrate active learning activities, you know, such as you know, questioning, problem solving, get the discussion going, do demonstrations. And recognize your own learning preferences and make efforts to expand your approach beyond those preferences. I mean, in other words, don't assume that you can teach something in the same way that you learned it and going to get the same results from all of your students. And I always like to have a plan B ready, you know, ready to go in case my plan A doesn't go as I anticipated. You know, doing so will help you maintain confidence and control. For example, sometimes a discussion or an activity that you expected to last, say, 15 minutes is over in five minutes, but it still achieved the goals you had in mind. Well, rather than just letting the students go early because you've run out of material, you can devote the remaining time to another activity that will help the students learn the material. In other words, I always over plan. I always prepared for that extra time. I may not get to it, 
Well, that's okay. I know it's there. It's like insurance. Some examples could be, I don't know, use the time to, you know, summarize the key ideas of the day. Or even ask the students to list what they thought was the key ideas. Or you can even, you know, present a problem or maybe a skill that you're going to be talking about or demonstrating in the next class. It's kind of like giving them a preview. So use that time wisely. Don't uh, let them go early on it. Now, no matter what teaching method you are using, you can enhance your students' learning and gain their appreciation if your classes are well organized. And try not to cover too much material in a single class period. You know, plan some kind of structure for each class period with clear goals for each, say, 10, 15-minute section of the class. And each class should also have a clear beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end of the class is especially important. So be sure to spend the last five minutes or more of class summarizing important points, you know, solidifying key concepts and information, and making connections to the material that you covered during previous classes. Because your students are not experts in the field, so they may have a difficult time identifying the most important points and seeing how these points are connected to the broader themes of the course. And I find that touching upon this at the end of each class helps them make the connection. And think about how you're going to present yourself as well. I suggest you wear something in which you feel confident and comfortable that will also present a professional appearance. You know, check your school's dress code policy for specifics. And if your school doesn't have a dress code for faculty, I would suggest dressing more formally than your students do in order to feel more confident in your role of authority. For many of us culinary and baking and pastry faculty, we usually just wear a culinary uniform. And lastly for this section, get emotionally ready for each class. You know, set aside some time right before you teach to focus your mind on the goals for the day and to, to look forward to teaching and to interacting with the students and to help them learn the day's material. Think about responding to their questions and ideas that they're going to be bringing to class. So get excited. Remember what brought you to this field. Reflect on the most interesting things about the specific course you're teaching. And use that energy to help motivate you and your students and, and get the students ready you know, to care about the subject as much as you do. My second area of focus is what I call positive classroom authority. Establishing and maintaining authority is important, not just for yourself, but for your students as well. They want to know that one person has control over the learning environment. Therefore, your authority is important to consider from the first day of class onward. What kind of teacher do you want to be? Think about what style works for you, how you want your students to address you, how you want to present yourself to these, your students. Typically, the student-teacher relationship is friendly but still formal, so aim to strike a balance somewhere in there. And be mindful of your body language. Practice introducing yourself or your course in the mirror, or better yet, to a friend or colleague who can provide feedback. Do you have the right balance between friendly and formal? It may help to pay attention to the body language of other instructors. You know, maybe you can go in and watch their classes. Where do they keep their hands? How do they use this classroom space? How often do they smile? You know, do some observations. And be aware of your speaking style. Do you speak quickly? If so, invite your students to ask you to slow down if they don't understand. Maybe English isn't your first language. If so, don't apologize. But if you think it's necessary, be upfront about your language and invite students to ask you to repeat or slow down you know, while they're getting used to your accent. And you could use the board to write any words that are difficult to pronounce clearly. 
But overall, be prepared and organized. Knowing what you will do and how you will do it will help your confidence and your ability to run a tight class. Plan how you will run the session, including how much time should be allocated for each activity. Predict what kinds of questions students might ask so that you can be better prepared. And also know course policies and procedures, which will enable you to answer questions quickly and show that you are prepared. And always have the syllabus accessible for reference if needed. And speaking of questions, plan how you're going to deal with questions you cannot answer. Because no matter how much you prepare, you will not know all of the answers. And that's okay. Not knowing an answer on the spot does not necessarily undermine your credibility. Students will be more likely appreciate your openness. You know, tell your students that you will find out the answer and then get back to them. Or, you know, you don't need to be all-knowing to maintain your credibility. Model intellectual curiosity and honesty. You know, be confident in not knowing and coming back with an answer later. You might consider challenging the students to find the answer on their own before next class. You know, then get put it back on them. And make sure you address any inappropriate behavior. If a student makes an inappropriate comment or engages in disrespectful behavior towards you or any other students, it's necessary for you to address it. Now, this can be difficult to do, but focus on the behavior, not the person. Call it out and explain why it's an issue and state that you expect that it will not happen again. It's also important to promote positive classroom dynamics right from the start, which I like to do by establishing ground rules right away. You first need to determine how the students are expected to participate and then communicate that to them. In an upper level class, I might have students generate their own list of ground rules that we you know, then record and agree on as a class and that's what we use as our guidelines. Now as the teacher, some of the things I can do to keep the dynamics positive is to acknowledge students' contributions in the classroom. You know, you can express positive feedback by simply saying, you know, good job or thank you, you know, in response to, you know, someone asked a good question or brought up a great point. You can also summarize points students have made and credit individual students by name. At the same time, treat your students' questions, and especially their mistakes, with respect and interest and give immediate and comprehensive feedback whenever possible. You know, wrong answers can be handled in a positive way, and often you can use them to extract an important point and, you know, clear up confusion. And lastly, be sure to manage your anxiety. And to do that, just remind yourself how you got here, your education, your skills, your experience. Even if you don't feel like an expert on the subject you are teaching, you are qualified and that you are able to learn it quickly and to put it into a wider context of the discipline and to be able to share it with the students. You may be nervous at first, but remember, the students may even be more nervous to be in a new situation learning new material, and it's your job to help them. Therefore, share your educational credentials, share your relevant experience as this will help the students learn more about you and also help you connect with the students and establish your authority and credibility in the discipline. Alrighty, I'd like to take a quick pause here at this point in the show to recognize our sponsor, The Colony Hotel, with locations in Kennebunkport, Maine and Delray Beach, Florida. With their generous support, this podcast is able to be produced and shared with all of you. So please consider their gorgeous resort properties for your next vacation. To find out more information, check out their website at www.thecolonyhotel.com. 
That's the, T-H-E, colony, C-O-L-O-N-Y, hotel.com. My third suggested area is on lesson delivery. Prepare for and delivering a lesson is a multifaceted process. As already mentioned, planning involves thinking about the goals for the lesson, uh, considering how information will be presented, and deciding how the students can engage with the content. Delivery, on the other hand, involves the way you communicate the content to the students and facilitate the class session. To start, establish clear lesson objectives. What do you want students to get out of the lesson? Uh, What should they know or be able to do as a result of the lesson? And how does it connect with the larger course objectives? You know, these objectives should guide your lesson. Then, I suggest you create an agenda. Doing so will help you organize your time. Sharing the agenda with students also helps them know what to expect and what they should aim to get out of the session. Sometimes I'll put that right up on the board. It also helps focus the class. So have a clear introduction or agenda at the beginning so that everyone knows what is happening and then dive right into the main part of the lesson. And that's followed up by a wrap-up with a summary and a conclusion. So each class should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And throughout the class, include opportunities for students to engage with the material in a meaningful way. Again, it could be something quick, such as by asking students to answer questions. Or it could be even more involved, like having students spend five minutes or so working in pairs on a problem or responding to some prompt that you gave them. And be sure to fully use the classroom space. You know, rather than stand behind a podium, move around, especially when students are working together in their groups. Walk around to check in and interact with them and see how they're doing, answer their questions, and help keep them on task if they start to, you know, get off topic a little bit. Now, regarding the presentation of the information, you can do this in numerous ways, including with the whiteboard, uh, using slides projected on a screen, or even using handouts. So when doing board work, here are some tips that I found helpful. So when I prepare my lesson plans, I actually map out what I will write on the board because I have found that having a plan makes my board work more coherent. Also, when I do board work, I'm, I'm conscious to make sure I print clearly and large enough for everybody to see and refrain from you know, erasing previous notes until you ask if everyone is finished. So as I write it up, they go, everybody got this? And if they go, no, no, I'm still writing, I'll stop. And then if I say, I'll erase the board and then start, you know, my next point. And try to make sure you face students while speaking. I either try to write at an angle so that I can talk and face the students at the same time I'm writing on the board, or I write first, you know, being mindful about how long it is since I've turned and made eye contact. And then after I write a little bit, I'll stop writing, turn, and explain what I just wrote. And if I'm working out a problem, such as like a recipe cost card or other math example, I found it valuable for the students if I talk aloud as I solve the problem so that they can hear my thinking process. So as I'm filling it in and doing it, I'm verbalizing what I'm doing. Now, when I use PowerPoint slides, I find them helpful for displaying, you know, visuals or maybe an outline of a main idea. And I keep things simple, though. I know lots of colors, text, or, or too busy of an image can easily distract from the lesson. In general, be careful with the amount of text you use and try to avoid slides that encourage students to just copy notes without thinking. 
Now, a quick internet search will provide numerous resources and the best way to create a PowerPoint presentation. I also use videos to help deliver my lessons. However, I find you need to provide the students with a purpose for viewing the video. You know, what is the main point? What is the emotional response? You know, etc. Think about all of that up front. So I, I kind of provide a setup for the video first and and then, uh, you know, play the video. And be sure to allow time to debrief after the students have viewed the video. And keep those videos short. If you have a longer video, they can be assigned for homework. You don't want to waste valuable class time with a long video. Now, regardless of how I deliver the lesson, I believe it's always important to show passion for the subject and for your students' learning. You know, by showing your students that you are truly interested in and excited about the course content and their learning, it's one of the most effective ways you can inspire your students to learn. Now, however, if students appear bored, don't be discouraged. Just try and get the students actively involved. For example, ask students to compose and answer questions or provide examples or solve problems. Don't assume that students look bored because they know the material and then decide to speed up your pace. It may be instead that they are having trouble understanding what you are presenting to them. It may also be that they're just sleep deprived, as college students often are, especially our culinary students who seem to all have full-time jobs and they work late into the night. But either case, giving students focused activities when they are struggling with the material or when their energy is lagging can provide huge boosts for learning. And be prepared to have good days and bad days in the classroom. And therefore, be flexible. You know, if you're not getting good results teaching in a particular way, try something new. For example, if the students in the class are extremely quiet, well, maybe try a small group activity. You know, get them working, get them talking, which they solve a problem or answer a set of questions. And as mentioned, include opportunities for active learning and interact with your students as this will really help. You know, demonstrate from the first class that you are interested in what the students are thinking. Include plenty of opportunities for students to ask and answer questions. You know, while a lecture course will provide fewer opportunities for interaction than a discussion course, you will find that students will be able to learn and retain more material if you pause every 15, 20 minutes or so by asking questions, throwing on a quick little video, or, you know, asking the students to solve a problem or discuss a debated point. And I also suggest that when you're responding to your students' questions and comments, that you use both verbal and nonverbal cues to show them that you are listening and engaged. Do not use this time to look down at your notes or remind yourself of the next topic. Students will perceive these actions as indications that you're not truly listening to what they're saying. And when you ask questions, be willing to tolerate some silence. It's going to happen. Often, silence means that students are thinking, an activity we want to encourage in our classrooms. Do not give in to the temptation to answer your own questions, because that will only convince the students that if they wait long enough, you're going to supply the answers for them. So be prepared to wait. And it's a long time, though it's only really five to ten seconds for an answer. It's going to sometimes feel like eternity. But if at that point you're still getting blank stares and quizzical expressions, well, then rephrase the question, you know, in a different way and then wait those five to ten seconds again. And encourage students to think out loud when they're answering questions and working through problems. And regarding class time, be sure that you start on time and end on time. You know, showing your respect for everyone's time will encourage your students to do the same. 
I actually like to arrive early to my classes if my schedule allows because arriving early allows me not only to set up for my class and be prepared, but I also can talk to the students you know, informally in which these little informal interactions help me establish a rapport with the students, which in turn helps them feel more comfortable to participate in class and to come and approach me and ask for help when they need it. Lastly, after each class session, I like to reflect on how it went, and then I always jot down a few brief notes, like on what worked, what didn't work, or any points that seemed challenging or confusing for the students, or maybe I got a new idea that occurred to me while I was teaching, I want to jot that down. And I keep these notes with my lecture notes, or I put it right into my lesson plans, so that I'll be, you know, have access to it, and I'll be prepared for the next time to teach this course again. And then I can make any necessary adjustments to the lesson plans. If you wait until the end of the semester or term to reflect on how the entire course went, I guarantee you will forget the specific details that will be helpful to you later on. So write it down after every class. Get in the habit. It only takes five minutes or so. So the fourth area of attention is the topic of student meetings. You know, and I want to talk about strategies that you can use when you meet with students, including during office hours. And students will come to you for a variety of reasons. Some may come for course-specific reasons, such as uh, ask questions about course content, request help with homework and assignments, or even to address concerns about a grade. Others will come to get to know you better to learn more about the industry or your background and talk with you about, you know, maybe possibilities of going on to college or pursuing a graduate degree or some other career-related discussions. And oftentimes they come to request a letter of recommendation. But when students visit you during office hours, it gives you both the opportunity to get to know each other better. You get a sense of how things are going in the course. Additionally, you can determine if a student is struggling and identify ways that you can help them before it's too late. But why don't students come? because I often have nobody showing up my office hours. And it's, sometimes it's because they feel intimidated and others don't see the value. You know, they don't, they don't actually want your personal attention. Still others may not be able to make it during the scheduled time due to other priorities or commitments, which is why I always put my office hours and then I say, or by appointment. Well, here are some other strategies on how to make the most out of office hour meetings, including how to get students to come and what to do when they do get there. First off, choose office hours that work for your students. And once you establish the time and you, you know, put it on your syllabus, however you list it, check to make sure that they work with most students. If not, consider rescheduling. Or if only some can't make it, maybe invite them to schedule appointments outside of office hours, you know, through the appointment process. And explain to them how that can be done. You know, tell them they send you an email or talk to you in class. And advertise those office hours. You know, make sure they're on the syllabus and post it to your course learning management system, Blackboard or whatever. Uh, remind students in class about your availability. I always do this right before a big test or exam. I say, remember my office hours, I'm here to help. And express that you hope that they're going to come. Say, please, come see me. Come visit with me. I always make jokes how lonely I am. Come visit me in office hours. Come as a group. You know, they don't have to come individually. And be sure to explain what to expect. You know, let students know what they can get out of office, or office hours and what they can expect will happen when they visit. Some students may not attend because they don't understand the value. So encourage their attendance. Keep in mind that attending office hours may be intimidating for some students or, you know, again, unfamiliar depending on their previous educational experience. Therefore, create opportunities or incentives that will encourage them to attend. And when they do come, help them feel at home. 
It's easier for them to open up if you, you know, you warm the environment with some small talk first. Now, some faculty find it helpful to make an initial appointment mandatory. They require each student to come during the first month of the semester, even if it's only to introduce themselves. So that may be something that works for you. Now, some students will feel comfortable coming to you throughout the semester to ask questions. Others will struggle on their own and need encouragement to seek help. First-year college students, some of whom may you know, be accustomed to excelling academically in the past with less effort than is now required, well, they may have a particularly tough time asking for help. So I was oftentimes right right on their quizzes if they didn't do very well. Hey, you should come to my office hours, you know, seek tutoring. You know, you, what you want to do is present yourself as approachable and interested in their questions and concerns, because that will go a long way towards encouraging the students to ask for assistance when they need it. And if students are struggling, ask them how they are approaching the course. From there, you can give them feedback on what they are doing correctly and what they can change to be more successful. You know, try and, and, and provide a few concrete suggestions for what they can do to succeed. But be wary of telling students that everything will be okay, even if they seem really upset, because in reality, you do not know that for sure. You know, some of them may be going to fail. So focus on what can be done. If a student is overwhelmed, upset, or you know, dissatisfied about their performance, acknowledge their emotional response, but focus on what their options are moving forward. You know, you can say, it looks like you can improve in this area. You know, come to my office hours next week for a tutorial on this. You know, help them identify strategies for improving their situation. It can help to, you know, break things down into smaller tasks rather than look at everything that needs to be done all at once. And often, a student's academic performance is affected by non-academic issues, such as a, a medical concern or a personal problem. And if you suspect this may be the case, or if you simply notice that a student's academic performance has declined suddenly, you may find it helpful to consult with the student's academic advisor, a student health services, school nurse, counseling services, something along those lines. Now, when students come to you with a complaint, take time to listen to what they have to say before responding. You know, let them get it all off their chest. Keep the discussion calm and focused. When you do respond, keep in mind the importance of sticking to your course policies in your school or university's policies. You know, to ensure fairness for all students, you should make exceptions only when circumstances warrant it and not in order to end a conflict with an individual student. And if a student is complaining about a grade, explain the justification behind the grade, but eventually turn the conversation to strategies the student can use to improve his or her performance on the next assignment or exam or in future courses. You know, be ready to guide the students to resources they may need, maybe for study skill development or other support. You know, know the process, again, as mentioned, for dealing with mental health concerns. So number five, the last one, is what I call miscellaneous information for the first-year student. You know, just like first-year teachers, first-year students come to campus with nervousness and anxiety. They don't know where everything is. They're often confused. And it's part of our job as teachers to put them at ease and welcome them to campus. Getting them acclimated and comfortable as soon as possible helps the retention and their learning. Now, besides the regular topics that are covered during new student orientation, here are a few others that are often missed or never thought of by faculty. So I want to start off with something we just covered, and that is what office hours are, why professors have them, when and how to contact professors. You know, I just went over that. So that may be something you need to explain. And as I just mentioned, 
you know, explicitly tell them what it is and why it's important in class so they know to come see you. Another area is how to read a syllabus, you know, how to understand, you know, what's in that syllabus, which is why I go over it and I explain it to them. And also, you may, in general reading, when reading is expected to be done. You know, it's before class. So you even got to talk about general reading of assignments when they have to do that. And what a database and valid research materials are according to you. They may be confused because maybe of how they learned it in the past. So you might need to go over that with them if it's part of your assignments. And how to format papers. You know, it's not something they're born with. No, none of us had it. Not knowing. We don't know about margins and title pages and sources. You know, so you need to explain that to them. You know, is it APA? Is it MLA? Lots of different ones out there. We need to teach them and provide examples. I found that Purdue OWL is a great resource for the students. So you may want to use that. Purdue OWL, you can just Google that and see it has all the different formats. Speaking of papers, when they do hand in papers, I have to tell them about staplers. For some reason, my students always come to me, do you have a stapler? Do you have a stapler? I don't have a stapler. When they bring their papers, if they're handing them in in class instead of electronically, they got to staple it themselves. You know, I don't carry that around. So, you know, maybe in high school they do that. So I have to explain to them, no, you got to have it stapled already when it comes in. Another thing is how to find books in the library. You know, they don't know how to do that, it seems. So, you know, there's gigantic rooms and often whole buildings on campus staffed with very educated people that can help students find books. But for some reason, they won't go there. They don't know how to do it. So teach the student to utilize these resources as much as possible. You know, for many of my first-year classes, I often ask the librarian to stop by my class the first couple of weeks, make an introduction or a little presentation on how to find books, how to do research. Or I'll even take them, take my classes, for a quick tour of the library, and I set it up in advance so someone's in there that could speak to them and show them how to do research and a way to find things and how to get information. Services, other services, not only the library that they don't they don't know. They don't know, you know, like tutoring is or the areas for disabilities or mental health counseling. You know, these are often free part of their tuition or fees that they pay. They think they're going to have to pay for them. So I tell them, no, oftentimes, you know, these are free. They're all part of their services. So take advantage of them. You know, they don't know that they exist or they don't know where they're located. So I'll point that out to them. And also students don't know, at least at the college level, they need to buy all your books at the beginning of the semester. You know, I don't know how many weeks I'm in the class. And like, yeah, I haven't bought the book yet. It's like, what are you waiting for? you got to buy the book. Now you're behind on the reading. So tell them right up front. Be clear about that. got to buy the book. And I even send out emails in advance before the class even starts. Yes, this is the book and it will be used. You need to have that to be successful in the class. And how to take notes. This is very important. No one seems to teach students, kids today, how to take notes. You know, whether with keyboard or handwriting it. So either way, I, I tell them how to take notes or at least give them a handout on them or give them some resources how to take notes. And by the way, research shows that students taking notes by hand learn and retain more than those that use laptops, mainly because the laptops they're essentially transcribing while taking notes by hand requires, you know, them synthesizing the material, condensing it, and then putting it into their own words. So, um, you know, I know some people want to have laptops in the classroom. I don't usually do that. I find that they oftentimes are doing other things, social media, than what they're supposed to be doing. And, and I tell them that the reason why is the research shows better to take it by hand. I also find that students don't know how to address us, especially at the college level. 
you know, should they address their professors as Mr., Mrs., Miss, Ms., by the first name, by doctor, by professor? You know, they just don't know. And since they don't know, they don't use anything. So uh, don't get huffy if your students don't know what to call you, but, you know, rather teach them. Go overtly let them know what you want to be called. I do this when I get to the faculty information while going over the syllabus in class, usually on day one. So as I have it projected on the board or they're all reviewing it, they see my name written right there on the document. So it's a good good time to go over that. It's also a good time to share what any of the letters mean that we might have after our name because they do not know that. This could be degrees like PhD, MBA, MS. It could also be certification, you know, certified executive chef, certified culinary educator, food service management professional. You know, I have FMP, CEC. They don't know what that is, so I want to explain that to them. And since I have a PhD and teach academic courses, and I'm also a certified chef who wears a uniform while teaching, I always tell my students that they can call me Dr. Roach, Professor Roach, or Chef Roach, whichever is more comfortable, so they can have options with me. Well, a few years back, I actually had a student speak up in class and ask, can we just call you Dr. Professor Chef? And that is how my on-campus nickname came about, a name I now use for my YouTube channel as well as one of my logos, so Dr. Professor Chef, and that came out when I was going over what to call me in class. And something that often came as a surprise to my first-year students, my freshmen, was the fact that they weren't required to be in class. You know, frequently, a student would ask me if they could leave early. Maybe they have to go to work, or I just have to leave early to have something else planned, which I would use as a, an opportunity to open up a discussion on time management and missing classes. You know, they often appeared amazed when I would say something like, sure, you can leave early. I never lock the door. You can come and go as you please. Then I would go into something along the lines of, well, life is about choices, and you need to do what you think is best for you. College is a choice, and I would hope all students would want to be here since they chose to be here by enrolling and registering for this class. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to reduce my class size or class load. I just want to treat them like the independent adults they are trying to become. These discussions also allow me to emphasize that I was not the one responsible for their success, you know, the success of their college experience. Although I'm happy to help, but it's really on them. And as an adult and as a professional at the post-secondary level, they have to make these decisions themselves. It's like almost like they're asking for permission. It's like, you got to do what you want to do, you know. But I also use another example. I said, it's like, you know, buying a ticket to a movie and then not watching it or to a sporting event. You spend all this money and then you don't show up or you leave early. You know, you're not really getting your dollars worth. So, you know, I let them make those choices, but I do let them know that, you know, it's a problem if they have constant absences or tardies to class. So that's it. Small sampling of tips and techniques that I hope will help you and your first year of teaching a little less stressful. I also suggest you take advantage of any resources at your school that are available for you as well. For example, learn about and participate in any teaching center programs that your school might have. They go by many names, such as the Teaching and Learning Center, the Faculty Success Department, etc. But they usually have professional development programs that faculty can take advantage of, you know, various workshops, handouts, scholarship on teaching and learning. 
Sometimes they even have staff that are available to observe your teaching and they can consult with you on teaching matters such as course planning, improving student learning, and grading. If you don't have that at the informal level, take advantage of and participate in any opportunities to learn about and discuss teaching with your colleagues on your campus. You know, engage faculty mentors and peers in conversation about teaching. Ask your colleagues about what you can expect of the students at your school. Ask them what they wish they would have known about teaching before they taught their own course for the first time. You know, your colleagues can provide helpful insights about teaching specific courses and about teaching in general. You know, what works and what doesn't work from, you know, their perspective. Maybe consider joining or starting an informal teaching group in which you discuss your own teaching and respond to the scholarship on teaching and learning. Another resource that you can consult to get more information on this topic, as well as many others, is the book titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips. It's published by Kendall Hunt. My co-authors and I wrote it in an easy-to-understand style, and it's offered in both electronic and hard copies. To get more information, you can go to the Kendall Hunt website at kendallhunt.com. That's K-E-N-D-A-L-L-H-U-N-T.com. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. Till we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.